0: If you have your Bible, open it up this morning to the book of Ephesians. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. And as soon as I say that, many of you already know uh, what we're going to be talking about. Well, it's also on the wall, I guess. <laughs> we're talking about grace, or it was. But we're talking about amazing grace. Look in uh, chapter 2, uh, the book of Ephesians, beginning... In verse one, Ephesians chapter two, uh, beginning in verse one. That's uh, page nine ninety eight, Bill. If you in, case you, in case you're looking, all right. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now, if we stop there, what a dark place to be. What a hopeless place to be if we stop at the end of verse 3. But verse 4 starts, But God, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Father, I pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Ryan Cushion, a few years ago, a young man named Ryan Cushion, was out with some friends in a, a town outside of New York. They were looking for something to do. They decided to go to a movie and About halfway through the movie, it was boring. They they wanted to find something else to do, so they got up. They left the movie. They're walking through the parking lot when Ryan happened to notice that there was a credit card lying on the seat of one of the cars. Well, not only that, but the person had left the, the car unlocked. And so on impulse, Ryan reaches in. He grabs the credit card. And they decide, let's go down to the the video store, we'll rent video games. One of the young men had a friend who worked there. He said, he'll run the card for us. And so they went down to the video store, loaded up on video games. They were going back to Ryan's house to play video games. Someone else had an idea. Hey, I've got a friend that works at the grocery store. He's working tonight. We'll go, we'll get a lot of snacks, and uh, we'll go through his lane. He'll run the card for us. So they go to the grocery store, they load a cart up with snacks, and it's about two weeks before Thanksgiving, and Ryan has an idea. He said, I'm going to buy a turkey for my thanks for my family for Thanksgiving. And so he goes back to the turkey section and, and says, uh, <laughs> wh- whatever you call it, and he goes, produce, no, that's not produce. Anyway, he goes back to the turkey section, and he buys a 20-pound turkey frozen turkey and they check out sure enough the friend runs the car they go back to the car they've got the games they've got the snacks ryan's got the turkey there's uh, ryan is sitting in the back seat of his friend's car behind the driver they're driving you through the night they're going to ryan's house and headlights begin to approach Driving the other car is a woman by the name of Victoria Rivolo. She's 50 years old. she has been to her niece's piano recital. She's heading back home. And the cars begin to approach one another. And as they're approaching one another, Ryan, on impulse, lowers that window in the back. He reaches over. He takes the 20-pound frozen turkey. He leans out the window. And as the cars approach one another, he winds up. And as they meet one another, he releases a 20-pound frozen missile. It goes through the windshield and into Victoria's face. Every bone in her face is broken. She's rushed to the hospital. They had to do emergency surgery. They had to put her on a, on a trach for a few days so, uh, while, they were, while she was healing. Her, every bone in her, in her face is broken. They had to use titanium bolts to hold the bones in place. One eye was so damaged, it had to be held in place by synthetic film. And oh, by the way, they caught Ryan. And the community's outraged. They said, We've got to send a message. We've got to send this guy a hard message, send our community a message. We're tired of this violence. We're tired of the uh, uh, senseless violence that's taking place. Send him away. Send a message. And then it was time for the trial. The trial was held in New York City. The courtroom is jammed with people. They're there. They're demanding justice. They're demanding vengeance. And the courtroom is packed. And as the trial is about to begin, the the judge calls the courtroom to order. And he makes an announcement. He said, ladies and gentlemen, there will be no trial today because a plea agreement has been reached. Ryan Cushion will serve six months jail Five months probation. And the courtroom erupted. They jumped to their feet, they're shouting at the judge, they're they they they're very angry, they're saying this isn't justice, this is this is not sending a message, this is letting them off the hook easily, and they're standing on their feet shouting and, and protesting when all of a sudden they notice Ryan Cushion is helped to his feet by his lawyer. He's no longer the tough guy. He's broken. He's crying. And they watched in amazement as his lawyer helps him go across that aisle in the courtroom to the second row where Victoria is seated. And they watch as he approaches her. She stands to her feet. And as they meet one another, she reaches out and embraces Ryan Cushion she says this. You see, the plea agreement was reached at Victoria's request. And she looked at Ryan and said, Ryan, I want you to have the best life possible. And then she said this. I forgive you. The next morning, the New York Times ran... A photo of that moment, that embrace. They had those words on the front page of the New York Times. Had those words being spoken. And above the picture was this caption. A moment of grace. What is it that brings a New York City courtroom to tears? What is it that that is so uh, attractive... About grace, that the New York Times has to take a picture of it and put it on the front page? What is it that, that a New York City courtroom hardened? They'd seen everything, they'd heard everything, and yet they're, they're, they're moved to silence and tears. What is it about grace that does that? Can I suggest a couple of things? One is this it's so rare. You don't see it very much. You don't see that kind of grace being lived out or acted out very much. But the other one, I think, is this. Because it's so unlike us, but so like God. God's a God of grace. Paul understood that he's on the road to Damascus and on the road to Damascus to to persecute the church, to persecute believers. And and he's on the the road and uh, and appearing to him is the resurrected Christ and his life is forever changed in that moment of grace. His life is now now touched by and shaped by the grace of God. And you see it all the way through his writings. The book of Romans is by salvation, by faith, through grace in Galatians he talks about salvation by faith but the source of its grace and here in Ephesians two times in this one chapter he makes that statement you are saved by grace through faith God is a god of grace grace is uh, is amazing and when I read these these words of Paul here in this this chapter in this passage of Scripture, I see two kinds of grace. Because every one of us needs grace, right? We may not acknowledge it. We may not even recognize it. But every person needs the grace of God. But you need two kinds of grace, and they're both in this text. But one thing, you need the saving grace of God. We need the saving grace of God before we moved to Washington, a few of you would remember this, before we moved here we lived outside of Charleston, Illinois and I was a pastor in that area we had three little girls and one day I was I had one of the girls with me had Sarah with me, she was about three years of age and uh, we were out in Charleston doing something and I was supposed to pick up some groceries, come home and so uh, I went into a grocery store called Whib Walker's now, Wilb Walker had two stores in Charleston, one on each side of town. There was a new one on one side of town. There was an old one on the other side of town. The old one was closer to our home, and so I ran into the old store that day to buy groceries on the way home. And so I picked up the items. We paid for them, and uh, we're about to leave the store, and we get to the door. It's February. The store, it's cold outside. The, the door is swollen, and... And uh, Sarah's about three years old. She's down here around my knees, and she runs ahead. Now you have to understand, this is an old school store, right? You had to push the door open. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it didn't believe some of you would don't remember that, but <laughs> you know, it, it didn't swing open. It didn't slide open. No, you had to push it. To get out. And so we're approaching the door. Sarah's down here around my knees. And she gets to the, runs up to the door first. Puts her hands on it. She starts pushing on it and pushing on it. And she's pushing with everything she had. But the door is, is not moving. And so dad comes along. And I put my hand kind of up high. And I give it a little nudge. And the door swings open. And I kid you not, that three-year-old girl stepped through the door and did this. Put her hands on her hips and said, I did it. I did it. And I looked at that three-year-old and I thought, no, you didn't did it. You you couldn't open the door. You didn't have the strength to open the door. You didn't have the ability to open the door. You didn't open the door. The hand of your Father opened that door. Now listen, ladies and gentlemen. There are a lot of people who think like this. One day, whenever it is, I'm going to pass from this world and I'll, I'll go before God and I'll, Or I get to the gates of heaven. You know, we imagine it in many different ways. I'll get to the gates of heaven. And they'll say, why should I let you in? And I'll say, just look at all this. Think about all the good things I've done. Look at all the stuff I've done. Look at all the things I've contributed to or been a part of. And the gates of heaven, the door of heaven, will swing open. And I'll step through it and I'll go, I did it. No, you didn't, did it? We can't do it. We need the hand of the grace of our Father to get into heaven. We're only saved by grace. Notice the wording he uses when he describes our former condition. Now, I'm glad it's former, right? He said in verse 2, in which you, now verse 1, notice, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. But I've learned a few things. And one thing I've learned is this. When you're dead, you can't change your situation. You have no power to do that. You can't make yourself undead. When you're dead, you're dead. You're powerless. And he's saying we weren't in a bad situation. We weren't in a difficult situation. We weren't in a troubled spot. Paul says we were Dead because of sin spiritually dead so we were dead now notice this but he says uh, you, uh, you walked according to the course of the world it was the world and the, and the philosophy and the mindset of the world that we followed we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit is now working as sons of disobedience we, we were under the control the dominance of, of satan and his his cohorts we were under his control we lived in the lust of our flesh we were driven by the lust of our flesh we indulged ourselves in the desires of the flesh and our mind we are by nature children of wrath what does that mean we were already under the wrath of god look it, it wasn't weight uh, it wasn't to be determined right <laughs> The judgment had already been passed on us. And we were dead. We were unable to change all of that. We're saved only by God's grace. You remember uh, a few years ago, a movie came out called Unbroken. It's based on a book. I read the book. Then I saw the movie. But uh, the, the book was called Unbroken. And uh, it's based on the life of of Louis Zamperini. Louis was going to be in the Olympics and then World War II came about and he was drafted into the army and so his Olympic hopes were were dashed and he found himself on a on a bomber, he's part of a bomber crew. They crashed in the Pacific Ocean. He spent 47 days in the Pacific. Sharks, no water, no food. I mean, Forty-seven days. Most of the guys with him didn't make it. Louis survived. One day, he opens his eyes. There's a rescue ship there that picked him up and took him out of the water. Unfortunately, it was Japanese. It was the enemy, and so they took Louis. They put him into a, a, a prison, and for two years, he was absolutely brutalized by the prison guards, especially one he called the they called the bird. He became his special project. He was cruel. He was he was tormented. He was tortured for two years. Finally, he is freed and returns home after the war. meets a young woman, gets married, but his life is in shatters. His his life is a uh, is shattered by his experience. He cannot sleep at night because he's having nightmares. He uh, to help himself sleep, he begins to drink, and but the drinking really doesn't help, and he, he's filled with an absolute filled with rage and anger toward the people that were his captors. He's he's enraged against them, and finally, it begins to affect his marriage. And his wife tells him one day, "Louis, I can't live with this. I'm going to have to divorce you." That same week, she's walking through the hallway of their apartment. She meets a new couple that just moved there. And they began to strike up a conversation. They said, hey, I don't know if you're doing anything tonight, but there's this, this new young evangelist that's in town. They're having a crusade. His name is Billy Graham. Would you come? And so she went that night. With the friends, Louis didn't want to have anything to do with God. He didn't have time for God. He was, he was unbroken. <laughs> and that night his wife came to Christ. And she goes home and she's been praying and she tells Louis, she said, Louis, I've decided I'm not going to divorce you. But I want you to go to this crusade with me and hear what this evangelist is saying. And so the next night, he finally, he agrees to go. He goes down the crusade. Billy Graham's preaching the gospel. Louis Zamperini's sitting there listening. And and as he listens, he becomes angry. He becomes enraged. And before they can even give the invitation, he gets up and he storms out. And he said, I'll never be back. Two nights later, he agreed to go back. They're sitting there in the service, Billy Graham's preaching the gospel. The rage begins to overcome him again. Who is this man to tell me how to live my life? Who is? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've gone through. How can, how can what he's saying actually change my life? And they give the invitation, and he gets up, and he starts to leave. And says, he's leaving, Billy Graham said this. He said, Just remember, folks, if you're leaving now, you're not walking out on me. You're walking out on God. He said, i stopped." stop. And he stood in the aisle, and Billy Graham gave the invitation. And he said, I don't know what happened, but in that moment, I cast my hope upon Christ. I walked down the aisle that night, and I gave my life to Christ. Louis Zamperini later would say, from that night on, I've never lost a night's sleep. From that night on, I never had another nightmare. He said, I went home that night, I poured all my booze out. He said, I've never had another drink since that night. His life had been changed. God began to deal with him. He forgave, He was willing to forgive his captors and did. But it wasn't enough. He went to Japan and began to look up those who were his guards, his captors, those that had been brutal toward him. He met with them. He shared what Christ had done in his life, shared the gospel with them, shared what Christ could do for them, and expressed his forgiveness all but one. And that was the bird that they couldn't find him or connect with him. But all the other guards he connected with, and many of them came to Christ. Listen, he wasn't unbroken. That's the problem. The movie portrayed him as unbroken. He was broken. He was broken. And it wasn't until that moment that he came to the realization, I am broken. And he brings his brokenness to Christ and allows Christ to take the broken pieces and to put his life back together. Listen, we can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. But the grace of God can. Saved by grace. One other thing, real quick. We're sustained by grace. We left Washington several years ago around Christmas. We were going back to Tennessee to visit grandparents for Christmas, had three little girls in the back seat of the car. We take off. They had their seat belts buckled. Isn't that amazing? When I was a kid, I laid up in the back back window. You know, what if you fell out? Well, they'd pick me up, and stick me back. I mean, you know, no, no big deal. Our kids all had to be buckled in seat belts. <laughs> My grandkids—it looks like they're in the space shuttle or something. It's amazing, and so anyway, we, they were they were belted in. They were in the back seat. We were obeying the law. We were keeping them safe. They're belted in, and we go from Washington. We get around uh, probably Goodfield, and someone from the back seat says, Are "We there yet?" <laughs> no, we're not there yet. And we travel a little bit further. We probably uh, I don't know around the Mitsubishi plant. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. We got around Bloomington about 10 miles, and there was another voice. Hey, Dad, are we there? And I I just said, wait a minute. It's a long trip. It's going to take a long time. I don't want anyone else to ask me, are we there yet? When we get close, I'll let you know. But until then, no one asks me, are we there yet? We went about ten minutes, (laughs) and Laura says, "Dad, can I ask you a question?" I said, "Laura, you're not going to ask me, are we there yet?" Oh no, Dad, I won't ask you, are we there yet? Okay, if if that's not your question, ask me what what your question is. And she asked me this, Dad, when we get where we're going, will we be there? I was kind of proud. She had found a way to ask me, are we there yet, without asking me, are we there yet? That's pretty good. I said, yes, Laura. When we get where we're going, we will be there. But we're not there yet. Guys, same thing's true for us. Where are we going Paul describes it. Paul describes, in fact, it's not just where we're going. We're going to heaven. But it, but it's more than that. It's already a spiritual reality. Did you see that? It's already spiritually a reality. Notice what he says. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God has made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see anything about those three statements? Made us alive, raised us up, seated us. It's past tense. It's already done. Spiritually, it's already a reality. It's already happened. But it's not a physical reality. When we get where we're going, heaven... We'll be there for all eternity. Spiritually, it's already a spiritual reality. And one day, it'll be a physical reality for us. We will be in heaven. We will be before the throne of God. We will be able to worship for all eternity. We'll be there with all the other believers. Our journey leads us to the foot of the throne of God. It's already a spiritual reality. It's going to happen, but we're not there yet, are we? You look around in our world, it's a reality, guys. This isn't heaven yet. Now, there's a lot of great things in life, right? A lot of wonderful things in life. But let's be honest. Sometimes life is painful, sometimes there's loss, sometimes there's disappointment. Sometimes there's suffering in life. All the great things, yes, but we also have the other side of it in this world. We're on our way to heaven. It's already a spirituality. We're not there yet. We still journey through a broken world. So how do we make it? The same way we are saved, God sustains us. His grace saves us. His grace will sustain us until we arrive. A year ago, Amy, her oldest daughter, was having their fourth child. We, uh, Becky and I were going on vacation for a week or so. We were in a car. We drove down to Jackson, Tennessee to check on her mom and my mom. We're heading out somewhere else. I don't remember where. We get there on Friday. Friday night, we get a phone call. Need to come back home. Amy's in the hospital. They think the baby's going to come this weekend. The problem is, this was the middle of July. The baby was due Labor Day. It was questionable. So we get in the car, we drive home. As soon as we get home, we go down to the hospital. We are taken into. Uh, we're, let me back up here. We go and see Amy. They said, if we can get you through the weekend, that would be helpful. But you really need two weeks. We began to pray. She got through the weekend. And she made the two weeks, exactly. The day came for the baby to be born. They sent us pictures. He's healthy. He's doing well. And then like a lot of babies that are premature, he starts to crash. You see, they're not used to breathing. And so he becomes exhausted. His lungs aren't fully developed. They rush him down to the intensive care unit. They hook him up to all the stuff. They put his oxygen on full blast. They began to give him shots to help develop the lungs and help him to breathe, but it was still touch and go, and I'll never forget walking in that room and seeing that little premature baby. I like to fix things. I'm not good at cars and stuff like that, but solving problems, I'm good at that. I'm a problem fixer. The guys, I'm standing there looking at him, and I realize I can't fix this. I can't do anything. All I can do is stand here. And I'll be honest with you, I have never in my life felt more helpless more powerless or more hopeless than I did in that moment and we begin began to pray and as I'm praying God puts this thought into my mind you are helpless you are powerless but you're not hopeless and believers, maybe some of you, began to pray. And the next day, he had a little progress. And the next day, more progress. And nine days later, he went home. And we had his one-year uh, one birthday last week. He's healthy. He's fat and sassy and has a little ring of bald on top with a little ring of hair. I don't know who he looks like. I mean... <laughs> Listen, I don't know what you're facing today, but I want you to understand this. You're in your own strength. You may be helpless. In your own power, you may be powerless, but you are not hopeless with Christ. The same grace that saved you will sustain you till you stand fully and finally before the Father. It is grace that sustains us. It is grace. Grace that saves us. So here's my question: Why? Why would God do this? Frankly, there are most days. In fact, almost every day, I I turn on the TV or I, I you know or I, I go online and I see what's happening in the world. You know what? Most days, I look at the human race and say, if I were God, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't but God bothers he bothered enough he sent his own son to die for us that we might be saved and have eternal life why would God be concerned about us he tells us here notice this verse 7 in answer to 5 and 6 he says in 7 so that so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Why does God do that? Why is God so gracious to us? Why does God save us by grace? Why does God sustain us by grace? Why would God do that? Why did He send Christ, He says, for His glory? It's all for his glory. when I was uh in elementary school end of end of school every year, um, we would go out to the football field last week, we'd go out to the football field and we'd have athletic contest. They called it Field day. Now, I'm married to an educator, so I got the inside scoop, all right. It wasn't that they wanted us to have athletic competition. The reason they did it was, is the last week of school, and they didn't know what to do with us, and someone said, hey, let's take them out to the field and let them run. That's how, I I believe that's how it started. And every year, we'd have these field day competitions. Every year, my specialty was the 100-yard dash. And every year, I'd finish... Somewhere in the middle. See, they'd give out these little these little trophies, gold, silver, bronze, these little, about this big, these little trophies for first, second, third place. I wanted, listen, I wanted one of those trophies. I wanted one so bad. I, and every year I tried, and every year I came in, not in the front, but in the back, but or the back, but somewhere in the middle. I wanted to win a trophy. And finally, my last opportunity was sixth grade, And I was moving into middle school the next year, so this is my last opportunity. And I decided I want to start training for this. I want a trophy. I want to start training. And so the day before, (laughs) I got got home from school, and I ran around the house about three times, and I'm ready. The next day, we go out to field day, and I was ahead of my times, actually, far as training I did a carb load I loaded up on fudge and candy and hot dogs and that's protein but anyway I started loading up on all the carbs you know soda and, and all that and I'm ready and finally they call our event and we line up across the starting line and I'm on the end because I want to see the look on their faces when I blow past them and the principal fires a starter's gun and, man, we take off. And I'm pumping my arms. And I'm pumping my legs. And I know my head went back just like Eric Littles and chariots of fire. And, and I'm, just, I'm just running. And across the finish line. And I look over. And, guys, there is nobody beside me. Now, half of them were ahead of me. Now, half of them were behind me. But I didn't get a trophy. I never won a trophy. Can I tell you something better than that? I am a trophy. I'm a trophy of God's grace. And so are you if you're a follower of Christ. Where his trophies, his grace has redeemed us, he has raised us up, he has seated us in the heavenly places, and for all eternity we will be trophies of the grace of God giving glory to him. Now here's the last thing I'm going to say, almost. (laughs) If that's what we're going to be about for eternity, shouldn't that be what we should be about now? Living as trophies of his grace. Giving glory to him. And relying on his grace. To save us. And to sustain us. When i going to ask our praise team to come. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. You're, uh, you're invited to do something. You're, you say, what am I invited to do? Well, you're invited to respond. That's why it's called a. Him of invitation. You're invited to respond. What am I invited to respond to? Whatever God's saying to you right now. Is God speaking to your heart? Is He speaking to you about where you are in relationship with Him? Is He speaking to you about a situation you face or a need that you have and you need to, to give yourself over to the grace of God? Whatever it is, you respond to that. The altar is open. I'll be here. You can talk to God in prayer right where you're standing. But you respond as we stand and sing.